Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we come now to hear your word proclaimed, we pray that you would remove every distraction, that you would grant us sharp minds and heart for understanding. Help us to respond with faith and obedience, and would you bear fruit in our hearts that uh, we might uh, bear even fruit 30, 60, or 100-fold. In Jesus' name, amen. If you open your Bibles to our sermon text, Zechariah chapter 13, in the Pew Bibles, page 799. Zechariah chapter 13, the whole chapter. Here now, this is the holy, infallible word of God. On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. And I will remove from the land the prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. And if anyone again prophesies, His father and mother who bore him will say to him, You shall not live, for you speak lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who bore him shall pierce him through when he prophesies. On that day, every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. He will not put on a hairy cloak in order to deceive, but he will say, I am no prophet. I am a worker of the soil, for a man sold me in my youth. And if one asks him, What are these wounds on your back? He will say, the wounds I received in the house of my friends. Awake, O sore, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two thirds shall be cut off and perish and one third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God. Let me begin by asking you this morning, what is the dirtiest, the most filthy you can ever remember being. Perhaps you think of a time when you were covered with mud and dirt and you couldn't wait to get into the shower and clean it all off. But of course, there are things that are worse than mud, things that are more filthy and disgusting than wet dirt. There's, of course, spoiled and rotting food, and then there's stuff worse than that, what you flush down the toilet, sewage. Earlier in our study of Zechariah, we already saw the vision of the high priest Joshua. He was clothed in excrement-stained robes. And this was the picture of what we look like when we stand before the Lord in our sin. But then we saw God's amazing grace stripping off these filthy robes and clothing him in clean and pure garments. This morning we come to another chapter here in Zechariah that's all about the Lord's work of cleansing his people. 
the cleansing that we all need. First, we see that there is a cleansing fountain that washes away sin and uncleanness. Then we see how the Lord will cleanse the whole land of idolatry and false prophecy. And finally, the closing verses speak of the Lord refining his people with fire, just as silver and gold are refined and purified. The dross is cleaned away. In the midst of all of this, we have another reference to our Lord Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross in verse 7. He is the shepherd who will be struck. He suffers and dies, and the result is the cleansing of his people. So we'll take the passage in three parts around these three aspects of cleansing this morning. First, we have a fountain of cleansing opened. Verse 1. On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. You see that this opens... This verse opens with the refrain that we learned about last time on that day, giving us another snapshot of the day of the Lord's salvation. And it speaks of a fountain open for cleansing. Notice how this fountain provides a double cleansing. It cleanses you from both your sins and from uncleanness. That is ritual impurity. The ceremonial law is done away with in the new covenant But this was an important concept in the Mosaic Covenant, ritual impurity. There were all sorts of ways to become ritually unclean and thus unable to approach the house of the Lord for worship. But ritual impurity could ordinarily be washed away with simple, clean water. And yet, ritual uncleanness, ritual impurity, it was a picture of the more serious issue of sin. Sinning against the Lord by breaking his moral law. And sin couldn't simply be washed away with water. Sin required sacrifice. Sin required the shedding of blood. Now when you think of a fountain, you would naturally think of a fountain of water. But here we have Zechariah prophesying of a fountain that will cleanse away both uncleanness and sin. Mere water is insufficient. So what kind of fountain could this be? Here we have to connect this back to what came just before in chapter 12, verse 10, where the Lord himself said, they will look on me whom they have pierced. That is, the Lord himself will be pierced. And we saw that this was fulfilled in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed, Isaiah 53, 5. On the cross, Jesus poured out his life. He shed his blood to wash away the sins of his people. He had explained this the night before at the Last Supper. As he gave his disciples the wine, he said, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many, for the forgiveness of sins. Matthew 26, 28. And so, what Zechariah is speaking here of a cleansing fountain, it's no ordinary fountain of water, but it is rather the outpoured blood of our Savior. This is the fountain that you need because your sin has made you filthy in the sight of God. Every transgression of the law of God that you have committed is like rolling in a pile 
of rotting garbage. It is like being covered in raw sewage. And you can never approach the Lord in his holiness covered in such filth. But the beautiful good news here is that this fountain is open. As we read earlier in 1 John 1, 7, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. But again, building on what we saw last week, this applies to those who mourn, to you who recognize that Christ was pierced for your sins, and so grieving you repent of your sins. And so John continues, as we read earlier, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But... If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 8 and 9. You have to recognize that you are filthy. You have to confess your sins. You have to come and be washed in the blood of the Lamb. And you will be made whiter than snow. And of course, Jesus is not just the cleansing, the fountain of cleansing as spoken of here in Zechariah. He's also the fountain of living water, as I spoke of in the confession of sin earlier this morning. He's the one who proclaimed, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. John 7, 37 and 38. Jesus is the one who has poured out his Holy Spirit on the church, who is the source of living water who flows within all believers. It's the Holy Spirit who grants the new birth, who continues that work of sanctification, of cleansing within us, who fills us with the joy of knowing that we are the children of the living God. This is living water indeed. So come to the fountain, the fountain which is open for you. Come to the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. First we see that he cleanses us from all our sin and uncleanness. Then we get a second snapshot of that day in verse 2. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. And also I will remove from the land the prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. Idolatry was one of the most common sins which plagued God's people, Israel. And so it's no wonder that the first two of the Ten Commandments focus on idolatry. You shall have no other gods before me. And the second, you shall not make any graven images to bow down to them or to serve them. After the people had struggled with idolatry for so long, now the Lord promises to cut off the names of idols, to cut them off so completely that these names are remembered no more. Now this is the sort of language that is usually used when it's speaking of a family being completely wiped out wiped off the face of the earth. The word we use for this today is, is genocide. It's speaking of no descendants left to carry on the family name. The family is completely forgotten from history. But not only will the Lord cleanse his people from idolatry, but also it says from false prophecy, which he says is inspired not by his spirit, the Holy Spirit, but by a unclean spirit, a spirit of uncleanness. Verse 3 then describes the mother and a father of a false prophet 
and they confront him. They ultimately put him to death for speaking lies in the name of the Lord, this false prophecy. Now, this is based on Deuteronomy 13, 6-9, which teaches that our loyalty to the Lord must be greater than even to our own family, even our own children. This is what it says, Deuteronomy 13. If your brother, the son of your mother, or your son or your daughter, or the wife you embrace, or your friend who is as your own soul, entices you secretly, saying, Let us go and serve other gods, which neither you nor your fathers have known, some of the gods of the peoples who are around you, whether near you or far, far off from you, from the one end of the earth or the other, you shall not yield to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him, nor shall you conceal him, but you shall kill him. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. Now you can imagine how hard it would be to do this, not just to choose the Lord over your own family, but imagine when it meant your own son's death. And yet here in Zechariah 13, 3, we see a father and a mother putting this into action, piercing their own son, the false prophet. It goes on in verses 4 through 6 to describe how on that day, False prophets will be so completely rejected among God's people that they become ashamed of their false prophecy, ashamed of who they once were. They will no longer wear this camel hair mantle that was the the common dress of prophets like Elijah. They'll no longer wear that trying to deceive people, but rather they start saying, I'm not a prophet, I'm just an ordinary farmhand, and I have been since my youth. They no longer want anything to do with their old way of life as a false prophet. In verse 6, someone asked the false prophet about the wounds, the scars across his back, or it could also be translated across his chest. And we know from Elijah's confrontation with the prophets of Baal and Mount Carmel that these actually came from self-mutilation. False prophets, in ecstatic attempts to summon the attention of their false god, they would cut themselves. But ashamed of his past, he comes up with an excuse. These are the wounds I received in the house of my friends. Now all of this, it's giving us this picture of the Lord's so thoroughly cleansing his people of idolatry and false prophecy. But now we have to ask, how is this fulfilled? Here I, I want to say I've wrestled with this question. I wish I could give just one simple definitive answer, but... Sometimes when we're dealing with prophecy, it's not always easy to know exactly how prophecy will be fulfilled. So let me give my answer in two parts. First, let me say the great majority of interpreters take this as fulfilled in Christ's first coming and apply to the church today. And I see some truth in that. It's true that Christ powerfully casts out unclean spirits as one of the great marks of his ministry. He greatly cleansed the church He's broken the power of sin, including the sin of idolatry and the desire for false prophecy within his church. And it's certainly true that idolatry and false prophecy do not have the same grip on Christ's church in the same way that they did during the Old Testament before his coming. And maybe that's all that these verses are meant to say. But I would just say that to me, this prophecy seems to be saying something stronger 
It seems to be saying that idolatry will be completely cut off, that false prophecy will have no more place among God's people. And so while I always hesitate to disagree with the great majority of interpreters, to me to say that this has already been fulfilled seems to be mistaken. For the clear teaching of the New Testament is that we must continually flee from idolatry. First John 5, 21, little children, keep yourselves from idols. And we must always be on guard against false prophets, false teachers, anyone who would seek to lead believers away from Christ and from the faithful teaching of Scripture. And you hardly need to look far to find false prophets today. They seem to be everywhere. Remember this term, false prophet. Someone doesn't need to be predicting the future to be a false prophet. Anyone who is speaking falsely in the name of the Lord what the New Testament calls a false teacher, they are a false prophet. And church history, as well as our world today, is filled with heretics, cult leaders, your everyday false teachers leading people astray. And so it seems to me that this part of the prophecy of Zechariah, it has not yet been fulfilled. But it will be fulfilled. It is here to encourage us that a day of deliverance is coming when we will no longer have to struggle against the temptations of idolatry or the deceptions of false prophets, the day of the Lord's cleansing is coming. Now, until then, we must continue to keep up our guard, to fight the good fight, to watch out for and flee from idolatry, watch out for false prophets. The Lord is saying he will cleanse his church. This brings us then to the third section of our passage this morning. The Lord strikes his shepherd and purifies his sheep. Now, verse 7 opens with the Lord of hosts commanding, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me. Now, this is a shocking command that the Lord would order the sword to strike his own shepherd. What is even more surprising is the unique description of the shepherd. He's not only called my shepherd, but then he is referred to as a man who stands next to me. And that's that's how the ESV translates it, but I prefer the translation, a man, my associate. This is an uncommon Hebrew word, which besides here, it's used only a few times in Leviticus to refer to a neighbor in regards to, in commands regarding the need to love a neighbor as yourself. And so the overall sense here is that this shepherd, he's a man, and yet he has the standing that is comparable to the Lord himself. Much like the piercing of the Lord in the previous chapter, this must have been a mysterious and difficult thing to understand. How is there a man who as yet has the standing of the Lord, but it becomes crystal clear with the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, because he is both a man and yet he is also God himself in human flesh. Before he was betrayed and arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus quoted the second half of this verse to his disciples in Matthew twenty-six thirty-one. Then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. 
And his disciples went on to protest that they would not fall away. And Jesus accurately predicted that even Peter would deny him three times. How was Jesus interpreting this passage? Was the striking merely his arrest? No, he understood the arrest was just the beginning. Obviously, he was ultimately struck on the cross, and Jesus knew where he was headed. He, was, he had foretold both his betrayal and his death several times to his disciples. But that also forces us to ask the question, what does striking with a sword have to do with Jesus' death by a cross? Can this prophecy of God's shepherd being struck with a sword be fulfilled by Christ's crucifixion? We've already well established in previous sermons that Jesus Christ is the good shepherd. So clearly he fulfills that. He is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. But the fact that his crucifixion is also said to be a sword actually gives us a profound insight into the significance of Christ's sacrifice. Thomas More writes, The sword is the symbol of judicial power. And hence the great doctrine here set forth is that the death of Christ is a judicial act in which he endured the penalty of that law whose penal power was symbolized by the sword of divine wrath. The sheep had deserved the blow, but the shepherd bears his own bosom to the sword and is wounded for the sins of his people and bears those sins in his own body on the tree. And so, on the cross, Jesus receives not just the Roman cross, but the sword of God's own justice in our place. Then when you compare 12.10 and 13.7, 12.10, the piercing, 13.7, the sword, you also see the mystery of God's providential working all things together in history according to his perfect plan. From one perspective, you see they pierced the Lord of glory. From another, you see that God himself brought down the sword of his justice on his shepherd. From another still, it was Christ who freely offered up his life and laid it down as a sacrifice for his sheep. All these things come together at the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ as he is accomplishing our salvation. The result of the striking of the shepherd, as we've seen, is that the sheep are scattered. And we see this fulfilled with Jesus' disciples abandoning him, fleeing from him, denying him at the time of his arrest and through the crucifixion itself. According to scripture, John, the beloved disciple, was the only one of the twelve who was there present as Jesus laid down his life. And then verse 7 continues. I will turn my hand against the little ones. This is the language of judgment. And yet we see as we read on that it is a judgment to refine and purify. In fact, this language of turning the Lord's hand against, it's used in the same sense of refining and purifying in another place in Scripture in Isaiah chapter 1. And in verse 8, we see that this judgment reaches not just the Lord's disciples, but all Israel. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them, as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. 
They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. So we have to here zoom out from Jesus's 12 disciples, realize that he is the shepherd of all God's people. And we see that the effect of the striking of the shepherd of Christ's crucifixion was a great winnowing, a great sorting of God's people in which two thirds were cut off and only one third remained. We shouldn't take these to be exact literal figures, 66%, 33%, but the point is that the greater proportion was cut off and perished, while a smaller number was rescued and they became the remnant. And in fact, we know that this is exactly what happened. Most of the Jews rejected Christ, their long-awaited Messiah, and they perished in their sins. It's possible that just about two-thirds of the Jews living in Jerusalem and around Jerusalem and Judea died when Jerusalem fell to the Romans in 70 AD. But there was a remnant who embraced Christ the Lord and found in him eternal life. And yet we see what follows for this third is that the Lord then places them into the fire. Just as a goldsmith heats the metal red hot to burn off all the impurities, so the Lord He brings his chosen people through the fires of affliction to refine and purify them. Now this prophecy, its exact application, it's difficult to interpret. Strictly speaking, it may primarily apply only to that first generation, the way the Lord scattered them and sent them out, scattered them that they might carry the gospel to the ends of the earth. But we would say that what applied to them we see, according to what Peter writes in his letter, applies to all believers. First Peter 1, 6 and 7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Later in Peter's letter, he tells us, Do not be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon you to test you. This is exactly what you all should expect in the Christian life. And though the Lord brings you into a fiery trial, he promises to be with you in it. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. Isaiah 43, 1 through 2. Jesus Christ says he will be with you to the end of the age. And that fire, it will burn away the impurities, but it will not burn you away yourself. And so just as Christ cleanses you in his blood for your justification. He uses the trials of your life to work for your sanctification that you might be made holy just as he is holy. Then at the end of verse 9, we see God's covenant promise for his people who are in the midst of that refiner's fire. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. This is the same language we see in Jeremiah 31, where the Lord promises to establish a new covenant with his people. In Hebrews chapters 8 and 9, 
It shows us that this, too, was fulfilled by Christ. A a new covenant sealed with his blood. Because Christ, the good shepherd, was struck, because he was pierced, he has inaugurated this new covenant in his blood. And so he is our great high priest who, having purified us with his blood, has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And he is always interceding for us. And so with Christ as our mediator between us and the Father, we pray with confidence, knowing that the Lord will hear us and he will answer. And so we know the fountain is open, the fountain of Christ's blood, and we are cleansed and we are reconciled to God. He also pours out upon us the Holy Spirit, the source of living water. And because that spirit now dwells within us, we know that we are his people. The Lord is our God. But even more than that, this is the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, not only that God is our God, but we cry out, Abba, Father. He is our heavenly Father. All this is because of what Christ accomplished on the cross, because he has been pierced, because the good shepherd has been struck. And so the filth of your sins are washed away. The dross of your corruption is burned away by the refining fire. And so you can draw near to God with confidence through your great high priest, through Jesus Christ, your Lord. Let's do that now as we go to the Lord in prayer. Our great God and heavenly Father, it is by your grace that you convict us of sin, that you reveal to us the filth of what we have done when we have transgressed your holy law, when we have broken not only your law, but broken your heart. We thank you for Jesus Christ, for the sacrifice he has made for the blood he has poured out, which has become to us a fountain of cleansing. And so cleanse away the filth of our sin, wash us whiter than snow. We thank you that our sins are washed away once and for all. And we pray, Lord, that you would every day be working in us by your spirit to make us more and more holy like your Son, Jesus Christ, that we might walk in holiness in a way that pleases you. We pray these things in his name. Amen.